So a few things before we get into the text this morning. Number one, I want to talk a little bit about our vision as a church. Uh, this is an illustration that comes from a book that's been pretty impactful for me. It's Timothy Keller's Center Church. And he talks about how it's important for every city and the churches within that city and the Christians within that city to work together to create what he calls a gospel ecosystem. As many healthy um, as many healthy specialized ministries working cooperatively with one another and pointing people towards the truth of the gospel and the glory and riches that are available only in Jesus. And one of the things that I wanted to share is that this is our desire. This is a big part of what um, fuels my thinking about how we do ministry in and through this church. We believe that emphasizing balanced, gospel-centered ministry... By doing that, our church is going to grow in its ability to impact this city in ways big and small. And it's through many different specialized ministries and the people who are gifted and called to each of those that we believe the kingdom of God is going to be established in a powerful way in Nelson. And when I look at this, um, this picture and when I reflect on it, and I was making a list of different ministries that are just happening through our church, not, not even other churches, just ours, it was incredibly encouraging to see how this is happening in our midst. There are Christians in this church who are providing leadership to these specialized ministry areas and who are supporting these kinds of specialized ministries. And I'll just name a few. I'm not going to name them all. Um, but, you know, whether it's the Beyond Our Walls prayer group that meets on Monday night, small group Bible studies that are teaching people how to engage and build genuine Christian community through the word and prayer uh, Jan Van Kassiel leading Freedom Session, her and Pat doing that. We have a missions committee, which is discerning and praying and uh, helping us to look for opportunities to bless Nelson and then bless uh, other opportunities overseas missions. A visitation team, I mentioned that earlier, that's kind of meeting today for the first time to kind of say, how can we bring, be a, be a conduit of God's presence and healing and love to those who are homebound or hospital-bound or um, maybe an elderly care facility. So these specialized ministries are, and th- these are just, again, just being done through our church, and they're just to name a few. These are being led by just regular Christians. But regular Christians who are passionate about a specific area of ministry, and they're not trying to do everything, but they are faithfully responding to what God has placed on their hearts. They're saying yes to God, and it's having a really, really huge impact People who are not Christians are being personally impacted in a really positive way through these ministries. Christians who have been sleepwalking through their life are waking up to their God-given calling and their God-given responsibility to get involved in a meaningful way in and through the local church. And everybody is being challenged into a deeper understanding of who God is, who we are, how we're called to live as followers of Jesus. And as we work within this church to, and and work with other churches in the city to build a gospel ecosystem within Nelson, I thought it'd be a good morning just to remind you that, like, you have a part to play. And I'm speaking, obviously, to you all, but also to you individually. You have a part to play in this ecosystem. It might be leading an entirely new ministry initiative. There might be something on your heart that God is birthing and that you're maybe fearful or, or, or... repressing in some ways, running away from, maybe you don't feel like you're ready. Um, Maybe you feel like you are ready and you're about to pull the trigger. 
So it might be leading a new ministry area, but it can also be just supporting one, coming alongside other people who are in this stream and you're saying, I, I'm passionate about this and I want to support what's happening here. But whether or not, even if you don't have a clear vision for exactly what you should be involved in, there's a simple but powerful way that everybody in this room, starting right now, starting today, and every day can build and strengthen this gospel ecosystem. And that is by blessing those around us who don't know Jesus. In our covenant church, we have an acronym, BLESS. And it's a very simple way to put in front of people that it's all of our responsibility to look for ways to bless and serve those who don't know Jesus. And the acronym is very simple, and it's five practices that everybody can do, whether or not you're involved in one of these specialized ministries or not. We can take these things into our uh, school, into our workplaces, into our uh, friendships and, and, and recreation opportunities. B is begin with prayer. We can be praying every day for those who are far from God. L is listen with care. When we connect with friends and neighbors, instead of being quick to speak, we should be slow to speak, quick to listen. Understanding where they're coming from, their perspective on things. Maybe listening for areas of woundedness or hurt. E is eat together. And often when we grab a coffee with someone or take them out to lunch, that is an opportune time to listen. To say, hey, how are things going? And to not push an agenda other than I want to understand where you're at. S is serving with love. As we listen and as we look for ways, we pray. We say, God, can you show me a way that I could tangibly love this neighbor of mine, this family member, this friend of mine, this coworker? And we go into every day eager and looking for an opportunity. Something big might present itself, but it's often in small ways. Going the extra mile and helping them at work. Writing a note of encouragement. Maybe giving them a little 5 or $10 gift card to a coffee shop. And S, the last S is sharing your story. That as trust is built, as our friends and neighbors realize that we're not loving them on our terms, we're seeking to love and serve them on their terms, then they will begin to ask questions. Why are you doing this? I don't understand. This is really kind of you. Where does this come from? I've never worked with someone like this before. And then we find ways appropriate to the context to share with them that this is how I feel called to live as a Christian. And I care about you and I care about our city. And one of the really encouraging things when I think about this acronym is that the more conversations I have with people who are involved in this church, the more I realize so many people are doing this naturally. You're already doing it. I don't have to stand up here and say, start doing these things. You're doing it. I talk to people who are praying regularly for their friends who don't know Jesus and who are taking time over a coffee, over food, inviting people over to their homes to listen with care, to eat together, cultivate relationship, to serve their neighbors, and are taking steps of, of risk to share their faith, invite maybe a, a neighbor or a friend to church or to a presentation or to read a book together. And I want to say that I'm really thankful for that, and I'm so encouraged by that, and I want you guys to keep going in that. 
Like, I'm, I'm, I hear stories. I'm, I'm out in the community. I'm connecting with people. And three years in, I hear more and more people saying something, something to the effect of, oh, I think I know someone who goes to your church. I know them through this. They're great. And that's not, you know, that, that's such an encouragement for me as a pastor. That the ways that you are loving your neighbors is being experienced as love by your coworkers and your friends. It's awesome. Keep going. And know that those everyday little actions, even though there's not a lot of fanfare, maybe no one's ever going to find out about them. Those phone calls that you make, the cards you write, the moments that you take to set aside your agenda and put someone else's agenda first, they, they might go unnoticed by everybody in your life except for you and God. But God sees it and God will bless it and God will use those seeds to bring about a harvest of, of righteousness and goodness. And in some ways, doing these activities every day, looking for ways to weave these into our everyday lives is even more important than those specialized ministries. We can have visitation teams, we can have youth ministry, we can do all these interesting, neat things. But if we're not blessing people before those things and during those things and after those things, all of those uh, initiatives just kind of become church busy work. And they don't have an impact. Because while these ministries might meet needs, while these programs might, need meet, might meet needs, what, what, um, what makes a ministry is meeting needs with love and meeting needs with a desire to bless and love people. And so as we move towards Easter, as we kind of move into, uh, in some traditions, is the, the Lenten season, let's focus on even just a few of these things, one or two that you say, yeah, I really want to invite God to like, open up opportunities for me to bless those around me, and specifically those who are in my life who don't know Christ. Let's ask God to use us to bless those who are far from him. Let's take a moment to pray. God, I thank you for what you're doing in and through this church and in and through the other churches in Nelson, and I pray that you will bless your church and all the Christians here in Nelson. Bless us. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you, to know how to live for you in a way that is winsome and wise and attractive to those around us. May we be light in dark places. May we move into our everyday lives with, with a genuine desire to bless and serve our neighbor on their terms. Grow us up in our ability to love each other well, but to make sure that we're loving and looking for opportunities to care for those who are far from you. God, I would also pray boldly that even though we are um, little and least and meager in so many ways, God, that you would still use us powerfully in your hands um, a smattering of loaves and fishes can feed a multitude. And so we would pray that you would take our offerings, as meager as they are, and multiply them to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I have decided to move back into Mark as we move through Lent towards the Easter season. I had one more message planned in the Abide series, but I'm going to find it another time to teach on that. I think where we're at in Mark fits really well with uh, kind of the themes that I think it's, it's good to be reflecting on and praying through and processing leading up to Good Friday and Easter. So we're going to move back into Mark, and specifically we're going to move into Mark 14, chapter 14, verses 27 to 31. 
And that's where we're going to land, Mark 14, verses 27 to 31. I want to frame this passage for those of you who are either new to the series or could just use a refresher as to what Mark's gospel is all about. So Timothy Keller has a great quote. I love it. He says, Jesus wasn't just a nice guy who did good things in the world. You don't crucify nice guys. You crucify threats. And the gospel of Mark is a dense, fast-paced, scrappy book. And it really dispenses with details, and it presents Jesus as a man in mission. And throughout the gospel of Mark, he uses the word immediately to aggressively move his account of Jesus' life forward. And for Mark, Jesus is this force to be reckoned with. Jesus is a threat to the status quo. Now, while there might be kind of a prevailing cultural prejudice regarding Jesus that sees him as kind of a doe-eyed guru or mystic of some kind or gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Mark is presenting to us a Jesus that is highly controversial, controversial, that's a fascinating figure whose life and teachings lead us to an astounding claim, and that is that God has come to live among us. And God hasn't come to bring judgment, but to bear it on our behalf. And so through Mark's gospel, we're, we're going to discover and have been discovering that the gospel is a kind of an insurrection. It's an overthrow. And it's a power that can only overthrow the forces of sin and death. And the gospel is a proclamation that is at the center of the Christian's hope and, and witness. And it's through this study of the book of Mark that our goal is to encounter Jesus and his gospel the way Mark intended, with transforming shock and awe. So that we allow Jesus to kind of rattle our cage a little bit and then go out into the world differently, recognizing that as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we, by God's grace and power, are a force to be reckoned with for good in the world. So let's read Mark chapter 14. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He's reframed the Passover meal, the first Exodus story, as a new Exodus story, which is all about him. So he's reframed, in a very controversial move, the central Jewish story and said, actually, this is all just pointing to me. And specifically, what's about to happen through my death. They've all just sung a hymn, which by Jewish tradition means that they probably sang segments of Psalms 115 to 118, which is kind of bittersweet if you read those Psalms in light of the fact that what Jesus has just told his disciples, do that this week, Psalm 15 to 118, um, and just put yourself emotionally in that space of what everyone would have been thinking and what Jesus, what might have been going through Jesus' mind as he moves towards Gethsemane and the cross singing these songs. And then they get to Gethsemane and Jesus says this, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. 
And all the others said the same. Verse 27. We don't know the conversation between Jerusalem and when they get just on the outskirts to Gethsemane. We'll learn more about Gethsemane next week. But they arrive at this place, and Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. Because it's been written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that quote is a paraphrase of Zechariah 13.7. Jesus is saying, what's about to happen has been predicted. It's not random chance. I'm not a victim of external circumstances. I know what's happening. It's been foretold. This is a part of God's plan. And this prediction isn't, when Jesus says falling away, he's not talking about betrayal in a sense. He's talked about betrayal before when he's talking about how one of them is going to betray him. This is um, it's a difficult word to translate, and most will translate it as a scattering, but the implication, the, the, the movement that it's trying to lead us towards is this idea of there's a coming strain, there's a coming pressure point, and right now with the pressure off, you're holding together totally fine. When that pressure begins to build, you're going to collapse. You won't be able to withstand the strain. You're going to be, you're going to fall away. You're going to be scattered. And fall away is, is, the, is the word uh, scandalizo in Greek. It's very challenging to know how to precisely convey the emotional meaning of the word. We get the word scandal from it. Scandalizo, a scandal on, a scandal. We use it slightly differently. Greeks used it to um, have this idea that something happening to you that causes you to say, oh, I can't believe it. And you, and you kind of shrink away. A, a, a previous commitment has now been called into question. You've been scandalized. It's something that happens to you that as a result moves you away from a place where you were committed to and in and invested in. Jesus says, you're going to be scandalized. All of you are going to be scandalized. And the implication being, you're going to fall away. You're going to scatter like sheep. And then he says in verse 28, but after I have risen, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. Jesus has been talking about his death pretty consistently through the gospel of Mark. And even here, even in the midst of painting a narrative that might lead the disciples to believe that there's a fatalism coming. Like he's talking about his death. He's talked about rising again too, but we don't really understand what that means. That seems hyperbolic maybe, I'm not sure. But this, the week that's played out, this Passion Week, this is Thursday, um, Thursday evening before Good Friday. So that's where we are in terms of the timeline of the final week before uh, the crucifixion. Jesus sounds this note of hope. He says, after I've risen, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. So Jesus says, you're going to scatter. You're going to be scandalized. But we're going to regroup in Galilee. And this is exactly what these disciples need to hear. Even though they're going to stumble or scatter, that's not going to be the end of the story. That's not going to be a terminal failure in a sense. Like a good shepherd, Jesus says, I'm going to gather you. There's still things to happen. After I've risen, I'm going to gather you back to myself. And I thought, you know, that's pretty cool because, you know, I have a line here. And I, just, I just wrote, you know, Jesus' plan then and now is always regrouping after a falling away. Jesus' plan is always to say, 
yeah, I understand. You have backslidden. You have made some really foolish mistakes here. You've just been cowardly. You haven't been faithful to the extent that you should have been. Let's regroup, right? Jesus is offering hope for backsliders and for those of us like me who are not as consistent as we'd like to be, not as faithful as we'd like to be, not as courageous as we'd like to be. Now, in saying this, all of you are going to fall away. All of you are going to be scandalized. Peter declares, even if all get scandalized, I will not. That's, that won't happen to me. Peter displays this really embarrassing overestimation of himself. Right? His confidence is in his, his flesh, so to speak. It's in his own abilities, his own righteousness. I mean, he, he literally thinks that he's holier than everyone around him. He's holier than thou. Everyone, I, that doesn't surprise me, Jesus, to hear you say, these guys are going to fall away. But I'm just here to say, I won't. I'm different. I'm better. And Peter isn't aware of his blind spots, and that should be a warning to all of us especially in areas that we think aren't a particular conduit of specific temptation to us. Oh, I know these kinds of people fall prey to these kinds of sins, but I don't have to worry about that. I would never betray you in that way, Jesus. I would never harm my spouse that way. I would never fail my children that way. I would never fail to take this action in this situation. Good warning for us to walk humbly. We're all sinners. We might present differently. Peter probably recognized, if you would have said to him, are you a sinner? He would have said, yeah, for sure. And these are areas of my problem areas. What about this area over here? Betrayal of friends. Oh, never. I'm, I'm loyal. I've got a spine of steel. That's one area you don't have to worry about. Um, my integrity and my faithfulness. So we should simply recognize that we're all sinners. And sins that we might not presume would be easier and natural for us to fall into can be creeping at the door. And so we need to be praying for humility and wisdom and power to resist all sin and to be aware of our blind spots individually. So you have this escalating conversation. You're all going to fall away. Peter says, that's not true. That might apply to everyone else, not to me. And then in verse 30, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And do you know what word he uses there? Whenever you see I tell you the truth in Scripture, that's not a direct translation because they can't translate it directly. It's amen in Greek, amen. Verily, verily, that'll be this. sometimes the translation will be verily, verily, or truly I say unto you, it's just one word in Greek, and it's amen. It's amen. Jesus, the only Jewish teacher, rabbi, philosopher in known history to amen the start of one of his sentences. Only one. And what he's saying is, you can take what I'm about to say to the bank. I don't See, normal Jewish practice is someone, a teacher makes a statement, and then the community says, amen, we affirm that. Jesus says, I'm taking that power away from you. You're not going to amen me. I will amen myself. What I'm about to tell you is as true as something can be true. You're all going to fall away. Not me. Even if everyone else does Jesus, not me. Amen. 
imagine that moment. Imagine looking, imagine being Peter and have Jesus pausing and then turning to you specifically because you've opened your big mouth and just looking at you and not, I don't think, a look of judgment, but a look of just seeing into the core of who you are and saying, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Jesus cuts through Peter's bravado and his naive self-confidence. You are going to disown me. And he doesn't use the word scandalizo. He doesn't say, you're going to fall away three times. He ups the word. He increases the threat level. And he uses a Greek word, aparneomai, which means to deny or to disown someone. To um, to be in a position where you claim no relationship to someone. That's different than a scattering, than a falling away, than a being a scandalized and, and shrinking back. This is intentionally saying, you have missed, like, I'm not with this person at all. I have no connection to this person. I don't want there to be any connection with this person. I want you to understand me and this person have nothing to do with each other. So one is kind of emotionally reactive. One is an intentional distancing and disownment. It's a very, very strong word. It is much stronger than scandalizo. Imagine that. All of you are going to be scandalized. I won't, Jesus. Never. Not me. Peter, you're going to throw me under the bus three times before dawn. And imagine, what would you feel like if you were Peter, right? Like just this, I mean, it would sound ridiculous. And it does sound ridiculous to Peter. So he pushes back. He says in verse 31, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That was a bridge too far for Peter. Peter says, I, you've got to, you're, you are completely misreading this situation, Jesus. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Peter doubles down on his position. I'll be with you, Jesus, right to the, to the bitter end if need be. I will die for you. And then it says, all the others said the same thing. Yeah, like, yeah, we're with Peter for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Again, tragic lack of self-awareness on display. But... I hear in Peter's um, bravado and in his heroic declaration, I hear declarations that I made at different points in my Christian life. I hear the same thing. I hear myself at different junctures of my Christian life saying, Jesus, I, I promise I will never do that again. Never. You can take that to the bank, Jesus. I'm super committed. I will never do that again. Jesus, if you help me here, I will absolutely give my whole life to you. I will commit to serving you wholeheartedly. Jesus, you can count on me. I'm willing to die for you. Ask anything of me. I'll do it. And then when Jesus opens up that opportunity, at best, so often, I've just been scandalized. Oh, oh. Like, 
you can have my life, but I don't know if I want to live out my faith in a way that jeopardizes whether or not I look cool to my friends. So could we work on an arrangement on that level? Jesus, I promise I'll never do that again. Never. That's wrong. That's bad. That's destructive. I'm not going to do it again. I'm, I'm not going to let it get out of hand again. So like all, like, I'm only human, Jesus. You know, and there's, you know, sometimes you make, it's not that big a deal. I'm, I'm just going to make sure it never gets like really bad. So I'll make sure it's controlled and contained. And I'm still going to feel bad about it, but... Um, yeah, we kind of need to renegotiate things because I have a, yeah, things have played out a little differently than I anticipated. Peter insists, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. How do we apply a text like this? Uh, probably four short things that... Um, they were instructive for me to think about and reflect on and pray through. Number one is that, you know, often Jesus speaks strong truths to our hearts. Jesus often speaks strong truths to our hearts. And those truths are not necessarily things we want to hear. <clears throat> now, some people's experience of Jesus speaking to them, in a sense, through his word, doesn't contain that element of challenge. That statement, Jesus speaks strong truths to our hearts, you might say, oh, that hasn't been my experience. My question to you would be, are you actually reading and praying through the entire scope of Scripture? Because what can happen is we can begin to operate with a kind of a spiritual selective hearing in our relationship with God, where we go to favorite passages, encouraging passages, uplifting ones, motivating ones, things that are meaningful for us personally, and we'll avoid certain ones, even unconsciously, because we feel like, well, that's not really relevant, or that doesn't give me warm fuzzies. But in doing that, we can, in a sense, be filtering Jesus such that the only words that we allow to get through are the affirmational words, and not the words of challenge, or the words of rebuke. And that's why if you're reading your Bible which I'm hoping that you are, you're, getting, you're having a good balance between significant time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, significant time in the rest of the New Testament, and some time in the Old Testament. So that over the course of a year, two, three years, we're availing ourselves to the Holy Spirit, um, bringing to bear all of the words of God to challenge us. And yes, to encourage us, absolutely, and to bring all kinds of joy and motivation and um, strengthening to us but also times where we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and instead of being like, oh, we're fine, God does a work by his spirit through his word and says, no, this is an area that you need to, to confront, to repent of, to confess. Psalm 86 says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. It's hard to know the ways of the Lord if we just kind of have 6% of the Bible on repeat. It's like the greatest hits track of an album. It's like there's this whole back catalog of like 35 albums, but like these eight songs, they're, they're pretty much the best. 
and I'll just, and they're, they're kind of the, the main things anyway, so I'll just cycle through them. I think we want to be listening to all the tracks and letting them wash over us. Number two, be careful, and maybe this is more for people who are younger in their late teens, early 20s. This is where I was. I needed someone to say, Jeff, be careful when aspiring to do great things for God. Heroism that's rooted in a heart that hasn't been made right by the Holy Spirit is just egoism. That's all it is. To act heroically outside of a regenerated heart is just to act out of your own ego. It might be well-intended, but it's still egoism. It's still confidence in what you can do and what you're going to show God and what you're going to bring to God. I came across a great quote by Matt Chandler. He said, God is awesome. He does not need you to be awesome. He wants you to be obedient. God is awesome. You don't have to try and be awesome. Just be obedient and allow God through your obedience. Allow other people to say, wow, God is awesome. Number three, I think a tough lesson for us to hear is we're all more sinful than we'd like to believe. We're just, we're way more sinful than we'd like to believe especially in areas where we're not under that pressure, where there isn't a source of being scandalized. There isn't this pressure cooker. It's like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing great here. But when the pressure's on, how do we relate to people? What's our response to God? My experience in looking at my own life is that I am weaker and more foolish and less faithful and less heroic, and I'm more cowardly and I'm more broken and I'm less righteous than I'd like to imagine, than I'd like to admit. So we need to stay humble. We need to ask God for help. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you would be healed. James is writing to a group of Christians. And he's saying, this should be a regular practice. You should confess your sins to one another. Now that you're Christians, you are called to walk in God's ways and in his paths and follow his rules and to learn from Jesus how to live in love, but you're going to sin all the time. You're going to have to confess that sin to one another. You are living in the overlap of the ages. You have been redeemed and secured in Christ. You've been washed by his blood. You are now a saint by Jesus' grace. But this side of heaven, you are also, you still um, struggle with a sin nature. You're still a sinner. So Luther talked about how every Christian is a um, simultaneously sinner and saint. It's two sides of the same coin. And so we need to recognize that we are more sinful than we'd like to admit. But instead of that being pulled in on ourselves in a self-deprecating way, it should be liberating because it, it should free us from pride. It should free us into greater graciousness with one another. It should deepen our prayer life and our seeking of God. It should deepen in our desire to serve him and to say, God, you do whatever heart surgery you need to do in my life. And I'm so aware, God, that I'm not aware of my blind spots. So Holy Spirit, bring them to the surface. Use whatever uh, 
whatever thing you need to use to make me more like you. So we're more sinful than we'd ever want to believe. But the last thing that I'd say is that this passage shows me that also we're more loved than we dare imagine. We're all more loved than we dare imagine. See, because the amazing thing about this passage in its context is that Jesus knows what's happening. He understands the road ahead of him. The betrayal isn't going to take him by surprise. The falling away isn't going to take him by surprise. He has seen this coming. And that means that Jesus sees your self-deceived, self-absorbed heart, your sinful heart, and he loves you anyways. And maybe even more remarkable, he sees your self-deceived, self-absorbed, sinful heart. And not only does he love you, he calls you. He says, follow me. I have a mission for you to participate in. I have a task for you to do. I have a calling for you to fulfill. You come follow me. While we were still sinners, Romans 5.8 says, Christ died for us. And Paul says, that's how God demonstrates his love for us. God didn't love us once we fixed ourselves and could present ourselves as worthy before God. When we were unworthy, when we were broken, when we were cowardly and messed up and in defiance and rebellion against God, he died for us. And when all of these disciples were second grade, uh, not good enough, blue collar, not, uh, not, not elite, uh, not educated at the best educational institutions in the first century, Jesus takes these people, these likely young teenagers who are naive, self, self-absorbed, have their, have their own agendas that they're hoping Jesus helps them to fulfill. And not only does he die for them, but he also calls them, come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to do something powerful and important, world-shaping through your life. And I'm under no, Jesus says, I, I'm, not, I'm not naive. I understand what I'm getting into. I understand I'm surrounding myself with guys who are going to fall away. One who's going to betray me and one who's going to disown me three times. But my love for you and my desire to call you is greater, is, is a risk that I'm willing to take in the pursuit of that. And so while we are in Christ, both a sinner by nature and a saint by Jesus' grace and spirit, Christ will use us, and Christ will use us powerfully. And so what I would say is that there's someone here this morning who they think about an area of ministry, taking leadership, getting involved, going somewhere, saying yes to God in this. But in their heads they're thinking, I can't do it because I'm too cowardly. I'm not faithful enough. I don't know enough of the Bible. I don't really know how to pray effectively, I feel like. I'm really inconsistent. My, my marriage isn't where I think it's supposed to be. I'm not the parent that I'm supposed to be. I, there's a lot of inconsistencies. I find myself making promises to God in one area and then totally going back on those within 24 hours. So I'll wait until I get my house in order then I'll present myself to Jesus and say, now, God, now you can use me. 
because I've, I've cleaned the mess up and, and, I've, and I've gotten my house in order. To me, this passage says, don't, don't do that. Jesus sees your weakness and your unfaithfulness. And he's not expecting you when he says, come follow me, that your followership is just going to look like spiritual upward mobility and just to simply increase in faithfulness and glory forever. He's, he understands the missteps. But the invitation of this passage to me says, stop waiting until you have it all together. Start following Jesus. He sees your meagerness. He sees your sinfulness. He loved you and died for you. And now he's calling you. As you follow him, he'll put the pieces of your heart and imagination and will back together. Don't put that burden on yourself to do. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a passage where through the words that you speak to Peter, um, your spirit puts those words in front of us. And God, I certainly speak of one who have, who's, um, yeah, used big words and made proud declarations that were just grounded in my own ego and my own pride. Part of it was well-intended to honor you, but I hear, I see a lot of myself in Peter. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we, instead of listening to you and responding humbly, we charge ahead, confident in our own righteousness. And God, I pray that the fact that you would surround yourself by, with people when you were here that were just so imperfect and so inconsistent and so frustratingly broken, and yet you continued, there's going to be falling away, but then we're going to regroup in Galilee. There's that note of hope, God. May we hear that hope of note this morning. And, and for those of us who have been hesitating to say yes to you, to follow through, God, let us put to death this idea that we have to we have to come to you clean. We have to come to you together. We have to come to you righteous, having done those things ourselves. Only you can put us back together. And so we come to you and we follow you. Mold us and shape us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.